<laughs> I've, got a, I've got a head mic here, so we'll be okay. Thank you, Val. <laughs> All right, good morning, folks. All right, we are uh, in, in the book of Hebrews, uh, working our way through here. If you're new with us, uh, my name is Chris, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we've been kind of, uh, as is our kind of practice, we like to go uh, verse by verse through a book of the Bible, and so if you're jumping in for the first time, we are at the very end of a book, but that's okay. Uh, we'll catch you up to speed. So we're in Hebrews chapter 13, um, verses 4 through 8. It was just read. Uh, let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to examine the book of Hebrews. God, it's been, um, it's been challenging. Uh, it's been encouraging. Um, it's been eye-opening in many ways. Uh, we pray, God, as, as we finish up today and next week, uh, this uh, wonderful book that, God, you would uh, press, press upon our hearts the, the practical aspects of what uh, how we should then live uh, in response to all the things that have been taught to us in this book. Uh, we pray that you would give us ears to hear, uh, give us hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. So we find ourselves in the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. Um, and as we noted last week, uh, the book itself, if you've ever read it before, if you've been following along with us, um, the book is full of theology. A lot of, a lot of aspects of who God is and what God has done, and a lot about Jesus who fulfilled all these pieces of the Old Testament, uh, be it the sacrificial system, the Old Covenant, all of those things he has, he has fulfilled. And so the whole book has really been about Jesus and about what he has fulfilled and what that means. And the major question would be, getting into this chapter 13, would be the question of, of so how do we then live if Jesus has fulfilled everything, Right? If he's done everything for us, if the gospel is about him and not about him and what he's done for us, not about us and what we need to do for him, if that is the gospel and it is, then what is our part here? Like, what are we supposed to do? Um, And so you could understand, you could hear that we now live under grace, which we do, and interpret that as God doesn't care how we live or that he really, really isn't interested in how we live. But the actuality is he actually does care significantly about how we live. He cares about how we respond to what he has done, okay? Um, And so he is. He's very interested in that. As a matter of fact, God, who is sovereign, could have created a world where our lives don't matter. He could have created a world where he did everything himself or chose to use some other part of creation to make himself known. But he has chosen us as his people to live in light of what he has done, to make him known to the world around us. It is our responsibility, and there is a response we must have to the grace that we have received. And so the fascinating thing about Hebrews 13 is that we now, as God's children, as his ambassadors, those who are to make much of Jesus with our life, he's going to explain to us that what we are to do and how we are to live actually doesn't have a lot to do with us individually, as much as it has a lot to do with us as a community, as a church. Um, and so that's, that's part of what Hebrews 13 is all about. You could say that Hebrews 13 is really telling us that we'll never make it in life. We'll never make it in life without genuine, vibrant community. You never make it in life without the church. You can't, as a Christian, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it very well without the local church. And so everything that's listed in chapter 13 is how to live in response to the first 12 chapters. And it all has to do with, if you take your eyes and look down there in chapter 12, he talks about in verse, verse 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship. So chapter 13 is like worship. 
What does it look like? Is it just come to church on Sunday and singing and giving and taking communion and doing those things? That's part of that. But it has a lot to do with how we live as a community together. And so that's what he's going to address here. And it's doing that and taking that outside of these walls and moving out into the community so that the city of man can see the city of God in a way they come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So the writer of Hebrew wants, Hebrews wants, us, wants to help us with this. And so in chapter 13, he gives us 10 practical ways to make much of Jesus together as a church. And we saw last week that what that involves, a couple of things, it involves loving the local church. We talked about that, uh, Jesus said in John 13, they'll know you by your love for each other. So the word will see God through us as we care for one another. It involves opening up our homes in that aspect of hospitality. It involves caring for the, for the hurting. Those are the three things we saw last week. Today, it also involves uh, celebrating marriage, sharing our stuff, and demonstrating humility. So that'll be our three things that we'll look at today. And so the writer's going to tell us, this is interesting, the topic that was read, the three that were read today, that basically, if we're going to make much of Jesus together, it has a lot to do with how we treat sex, money, and power. How we treat sex, money, and power are going to be drastically different than the way the world is going to treat those three things. And those three things can be life-giving, they can be, they can be ways to make much of Jesus, or they can destroy the gospel one way or the other and how we treat those three very powerful things. So, uh, so let's look at those. Let's look at the, we've seen, uh, love the church, open your home, care for the hurting. Number four here, the practical part is celebrate marriage. Verse four says that let marriage be held in honor among all. So the writer says to literally, the word is actually celebrate marriage. Celebrate sex and marriage, right? Husbands are like, man, honey, we chose a good Sunday today to come to church, right? This is good. I like this guy. No, um, but you know, you look, you look at verse three. This, this is the interesting part. We saw last week, we ended with verse three. And we talked about verse three here tells us, it says, remember those in prison as though in prison with them, those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all. Think about that for a moment. There could not be, culturally speaking, a dra- more drastic difference between verse 3 and verse 4, right? They're, they're very different. Verse 3, it is a call to social justice. It's a call to care for the marginalized, right? And then you get to verse 4, and here it is talking about sexual purity, both of those. Uh, no sex outside of marriage is what he's talking about here. Uh, no, not just adultery, which is sex with someone else when married, but the Greek word is literally the word porneia. And you can hear the root of that word. It's a junk drawer term, as it were, used for sex with anyone when not married or any kind of sex outside of husband and wife in marriage. So think about those two flags being raised. We're going to care about the poor, and we're going to honor marriage, and we're going to be sexually pure. I mean, those two, you don't see those two flags put together, do you, in the culture? Those are radically different. Uh, you know, the, we, we need to have both of those um, for those typically crying for sexual purity are weak on social justice, and those crying for social justice typically are weak on sexual purity. So when a church has both of these things, you begin, there becomes no category to put them into in the culture. You can't have verse 3 without verse 4, and you can't have verse 4 without verse 3. We must be about both of those things. Now, the reason both of these calls, verse 3 and verse 4, the social justice aspect and the sexual purity aspect, are both from God is because they're both calls to selflessness, okay? They're both calls to love the community, love your neighbor as yourself. 
They're both calls to value the community higher than the individual, to put the community before the individual. That's why all these commands have to do with us as a body, as a people. So in, in loving the marginalized, you're putting aside your comforts, right, your time, your treasure for the sake of benefiting someone else. When you choose to keep your resources to yourself and help no one else, you're putting your individuality above the community. Same is true of sex here. If you're wanting to have sex without marriage, you're putting your individual pleasure and happiness over the community, over other people. And it doesn't matter what you call it. You can call it love if you want, but that's not what it is. When you turn, turn into an, an individualized pursuit, you turn it into a weapon that destroys marriages and families and cities and societies. Listen, not honoring marriage as God has prescribed it is an epidemic in our culture, right? It doesn't take too, too hard to look at that and see that. We are obsessed as a culture with sex in about every arena outside of marriage, which is exactly the opposite of what God says here. We value the individual over the community as a culture. And again, this is nothing new. You know, I love to quote C.S. Lewis. I'm going to take you on a little journey here for a second. This was written 60 plus years ago, okay? This is Lewis coming on the culture at that time. Here's what he says. He says, suppose you come to a country uh, where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate on stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone else, just before the lights went out, that it contained a pork chop or a piece of bacon. So you, you can imagine you could pack a theater and you could just all of a sudden show the pork chop and like close the, close the, close the, uh, the, the drapes and everything and then people are like, yeah, this is awesome. We came here for this. He said, would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with their appetite for food? Why in the world are they packing the theater to see just a little tiny pork chop or a little bit of a piece of bacon? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think there was something strange about the fact that people pay money to watch a woman take off her clothes? It's exactly the same thing. Lewis, Lewis says some might claim that the preoccupation with a pork chop, okay, or a piece of bacon, might be understood if, that, if those people were starving, right? They had no food. They would pack this theater because, man, they, they haven't seen food in a long time, and they, they really want food. He says that, that would make sense. He says it's difficult to imagine that anyone could argue that it's a starvation or a lack of sex that is the reason our culture is so preoccupied with the subject, Instead, he talks about, he said, it's far more likely that there's some twisting of it. There's some perversion of our nature, what the Bible calls sinfulness, that turns sexuality into something very different. But our society is not alone. The guys who were reading this letter for the first time some 2,000 years ago lived in Roman culture. In Roman culture, this is interesting, they would be happy to, quote, share their bed with anyone and everyone, but they, wouldn't, they, they weren't very particular about sharing their table meaning sharing their food or sharing their money, right? Those things are privatized. Our bed can be very public. And so uh, Tertullian, he was a pastor back in the first couple hundred years of the church. Back in that time, he said uh, he noted that the Christians were known for, quote, sharing their table but not their bed. So it was exactly, exactly the opposite of Roman culture. And the Christians understood Jesus' call to die to self. So when it came to money and sex, they saw them as ways of building up someone else other than themselves, which is exactly what the Romans were doing the opposite of. And there's a reason the Roman Empire is no longer around today. I mean, you, 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 you take out, you individualize money and sex and power and all these things, your, your society will not make it. It will, it will be destroyed. But listen, God, and God is serious about this, right? We heard this read a little while ago. God's not playing around about this. You, know, you may sometimes read the Old Testament and go like, well, there's the Old Testament God who's judgmental and everything, and there's the New Testament God who's 
Jesus, you know, I don't know, jumping through the fields and hugging llamas or something. I don't know what you think about that. But anyway, you're just like this whole, I don't know why I thought of llamas for a second. Butterflies. Okay, let's try that. Um, but, you know, there's kind of this image of like these two different gods, and that's not the case at all. You see here that Jesus is very serious as well. It's very serious. And this is not because the text talks about God will judge, and we need to hear that. And it's not because God is some prude who gives us sexual desires and says, you know what, you just got to deal with it. Too bad. That's not what it is. He, he loves us, and his judgment here is not because he's trigger-happy. And what I hear when I hear these words is a sober, sober, truthful reinforcement of love for people. God loves it when we love other Christians. God loves it when we love strangers. God loves it when we love the marginalized. And he loves it when we don't love money but trust him for our needs. And he loves it when we honor marriage. Right? That's what he's saying. He loves these things. Why does he love these things? Because love is good for Christians. Love is good for strangers. Love is good for the marginalized. Not loving money is good for our souls. And honoring marriage is good for us and our society. Therefore, God would be unloving. Okay, just follow the logic there. God would be unloving if he did not judge those who demean marriage and cheapen it and treat it with contempt. The same goes for those who don't show mercy or those who, who don't help others. Those who don't open their homes and welcome people. He knows that if, if we don't celebrate and honor marriage and sex within marriage, it will explode and cause deep pain. I mean, how many of us in this room have scars because either we didn't honor the marriage bed or our parents did not do so and we face the repercussions of that, right? We all have some connection to that broke when sex has not been treated the way God wants it. We've all felt in some capacity the pain and brokenness from that. And so this is God's love for us this morning. This call to sexual purity and treating the marriage as God designed it sounds odd to our ears. And the reason it, t- it sounds odd is because, guys, we are children of our culture. We adopt more of the culture than we care to realize. So when we hear things like, God will judge the sexually immoral, we kind of get a little, ah, oh, it sounds a little tough there. I don't know if I like that. That's because we live in a culture that doesn't like that, right? Um, we see everything else in chapter 13 is good. Think about all the things he's going to list here. We go like, oh, that sounds good, right? Not just for others, but we would argue probably good for a society, but, for, but uh, we have a hard time seeing how, how this is loving. We're to love marriage because God wants to take care of us. To not do so, again, will destroy community, destroy the church, and destroy our culture, and so God takes it seriously. And you say, now, so I get how we're to make much of Jesus by valuing marriage, right? Using sex as God prescribes it. But how does that very private kind of thing impact the actual culture? How does that impact the advancement of the gospel, which the writer is getting to? How does, how does this work as a means of the culture seeing Jesus? That doesn't make any sense. How, how can, how can um, we, we can see how loving each other or showing hospitality or doing justice or sharing our money can all advance the gospel. But how does marriage do that? Well, the reason this is here, the reason it's put in this text, right where it's put there, is because it is part of that missional strategy. Because there's no more, first of all, there's no more efficient way to sink the ship of the church or sink the ship of the gospel than through adultery and sexual morality. Think about how many churches have been destroyed over this issue, right? The other reason that the command is so important is because there's no greater way for people to see the gospel than through a loving marriage of two Christians, Jesus didn't reach for the husband-wife relationship to illustrate his relationship to the church because he lacked a good illustration. It was very purposeful. Matter of fact, if you go see Ephesians 5, 
Paul writes there about the husband and wife illustrating the relationship between Jesus and his church. And so we understand that marriage was created ultimately, okay, ultimately, not for our need for companionship or for sexual gratification or even for children, but ultimately the reason it was created was to be a picture of Jesus' love for the church and the church's love for Jesus. That is the ultimate image of why it was created. So that's why he says in Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is profound. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's his summary over all he's talked, uh, talked about with, um, with, the, with the marriage and relationship to Christ. So you say, all right, what about us who are not married? Should we have just caught a nap the last, like, five minutes or so you've been talking about marriage? Like, what's the point? Now look at the verse again. Notice the command. He calls them here to greatly honor, greatly treat, treat with exceptional value, highly prized marriage, Literally, let marriage be precious to all of you, is what he says. Whether you be single or married or young or old, celebrate marriage. This means we don't run into the ditch. On one side, we talk about marriage, where we get all kind of monkish, as it were, and think that Jesus is really glorified when we're single. But we also don't run into the other ditch, where we think marriage is the only way to really make much of Jesus and for the culture to see him. And so remember, Jesus was single. I think he did a pretty good job of making much of God by being a single man, right? I think that was very much done there. But listen, if you are single or married or whatever, widowed, this passage is calling every one of us in the church to take on the responsibility to guard their own marriage and the marriages of others. It's absolutely vital that the entire church get this command to uphold the marriages within our church. We all have a responsibility, whether you're married now or whether you're not, Okay, we're responsible not just for our own marriage, but the marriages of everybody else. We're to help, help them, we're to support them, we're to encourage them, we're to come alongside of them. That's part of what the command is saying. We all play a part in supporting each other and other marriages we see around us. So we all need to do everything we can to help our married couples make much of Jesus. And so the question becomes practically is what can you do? How can you, whatever state status you're in, how can you contribute to helping other marriages within this local body so that the gospel can move forward? Right? That is part of on the responsibility for all of us. All right, number five. Number two this morning, but number five overall, what we're looking at is, uh, is share your stuff. Okay? Share your stuff. We see this in verse five. Keep your life free from the love of money. And then down in verse 16, do not neglect to, be, to do good and to share what you have. And so money is the other, other area of our culture that we must redeem and use to make much of Jesus. And again, this is another means of Jesus' call to die to self, to put the community before the individual. And again, that's easier said than done, because we rarely don't love money. And we all rarely are content with what we have. We all rarely really want to share what we have. Let's just be honest with ourselves here. So just, uh, just think, about, think about this. Think about all the sins you've ever heard confessed or you yourself have ever confessed? How often have you heard yourself or anyone else say, you know, I just need to confess that I'm very covetous, or I'm very greedy? You never hear that one, right? You know, I mean, you hear all kinds of stuff confessed, and people talk about their struggles, but you never hear someone say, I really struggle with greed. Why? Because we're all (laughs) self-deceived. We're all greedy, and we don't know we're greedy, right? I mean, that's, that's why you get to certain passages, and actually God has to kind of remind us of this and be serious about it. He says, uh, Luke twelve fifteen, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. 
Be, beware of it. Be, be on your guard because you're not going to notice it. Right? He, doesn't say, he doesn't say this about adultery. Okay? You say he doesn't say that. Why? Because he doesn't say, be careful you're not committing adultery. He doesn't have to do that. When you're in bed with someone else's spouse, you kind of know what you're doing at that point. This is greedy. This is, we don't understand we're even that way. So it's clear the world is filled with greed and materialism, but almost no one thinks it's true of them. We're all in denial. <laughs> so the writer, I love this. He doesn't just say, you know what, knock it off or go burn all the money you have. He doesn't say that. Um, he actually says, give, he gives us ways to fight um, greed. He gives us ways to do it. He tells us that if we we're going we're gonna to share our stuff, if we're going to want to do that, we need to know the reality of money, the reality of Jesus, so that we then can share. So let's look at a few of these. Know the reality of money. He tells us not to love money and make every effort to keep ourselves free from that prison. This is because he understood the danger of it and the, to our souls and also for the mission. Paul would say this, 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through the, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So he says, he says they, this is funny, because he says they end up with dumb desires. That's basically what he says. When you start coveting, you start being greedy, you get these kind of dumb desires, So what he says. So coveting, which is a desire, leads to really dumb desires. The idea is that money is kind of like a drug, and covetousness is like a drug addiction. The more, the more you have, the more you want. And it just gets plain dumb. You start desiring things that you don't even need, but now you think you must have them. Just watch the commercials, right? Look at the Facebook and Instagram ads. Just look at them. I mean, they're, they're appealing to you to get stuff you don't need, that all of a sudden, eventually, you go like, I think I actually need that now, right? I remember it was in, uh, we lived in L.A. We had a small house, and all we had was a, with the, one of these um, bear claw tubs, right? So we had like, no shower, and my kids were getting older, and I'm like, I gotta create a shower because this is taking too long to create baths for all of them. And so I'm like, I'm gonna create this. I'm gonna go, go to the Home Depot, wherever, I'm gonna buy these shower heads to kind of create so we can convert this into a shower. And I was shocked. I'd never shopped for a shower head before. But I went and I found shower heads that literally the wa- it would change from blue to red the water color to tell you if it was cold or hot. So you knew you had to stick your hand there to feel. You could just watch and be like, okay, that's kind of a nice mild color. I think it's ready to get in there, right? I mean, it was crazy. I'm like, who, who needs this? And you're like, I know some of you are going like, I need this, right? I just burned my hand the other day. Um, you know, there, there were ones that make you feel like you're in the Amazon rainforest, right? I mean, the whole thing, I mean, it can blow water sideways and top. And you're like, ah, I mean, I just wanted my kids, my boys are starting to smell, right? I just needed a shower, I was going to buy a pressure washer and just like <sighs> wash them off or something. Um, it was crazy about how, how much uh, detail they went into shower heads. But this is why this is money with a, with a covetous attitude can become like, they become like weights on people. It just kind of weighs us down in that way. And so it's important to understand that. It weighs us down. Listen to Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. That's one of those verses that you all just, we all just need to memorize that one. Because I know some of you are sitting here going like, well, I don't struggle with greed. Yeah, you do. <laughs> okay? This is one to memorize. Just to have put up in your house somewhere, put it on your mirror, so you can just, re- just remember this truth. It will not satisfy my soul. I don't care how much of it I get. It will not satisfy my soul. No matter how much income I get, it won't work. It's vanity. Okay? Number two, the, the, know the reality of Jesus here. We see the writer says basically, and this is interesting, be content, notice the passage, be content because 
Jesus will never forsake you. You see that connection? Be content with what you have because Jesus will never forsake you. The word forsake, okay, is the word, literally means, it's the word used to untie a rope on the boat, okay? So this summer you're at the boat, you know, and you kind of untie it from the dock. It's kind of the same word. You forsake the rope. You forsake, you took it off of the boat so that you can get away. Um, it was also used, the same word forsake was used for pulling up anchor, right, on a, on a ship uh, that's being kind of storm-tossed. They need to get out of there, and they kind of pull the anchor up so they can move. It's used in Acts 27. And then the word to leave, it says Jesus will never leave or forsake you. The word leave is the word for being abandoned in the desert. That's how that word has been used in the Greek language. So the author has alluded to both of these, right? If you're familiar with Hebrews, we've walked through. He is uh, familiar with these images and how the church felt. They felt like they were a storm-tossed boat. Remember that back in chapter 2? They felt like people wandering around the desert, Hebrews chapter 4, right? These were all connections he had made. And so I love this language. And I've told you this before, but this is one of my favorite discoveries ever. Hebrews 13.5, when it says, Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. If you know Greek or you want to learn Greek, you want to look this up. It's fascinating. I know you're thinking, like, that's not what I want to do today. But just listen to this. In the Greek, it's horrible grammar. English teachers, you're going to hate this. A lot of double negatives. The word literally in the Greek is five negative particles in one sentence. You're like, we're learning English this morning. Yes, you are, because this is important. And so this is what the verse literally says. Jesus will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. Isn't that fascinating? That, that's, I wish the English would have translated that way. I know it's bad grammar, but it's awesome. It's awesome theology, right? I mean, it's awesome theology. And that's what the writer has been, remember the whole book, he's been communicating to them. And this is really the, this is what's going to motivate them. This is going to help them share their stuff. It's like, look, Jesus got you. He's going to take care of you. You can part with some of your stuff. You can give some away to those in need. You can do that because, listen, he's never going to leave you. And he owns everything, okay? He's got you. That's why this is so, so important. That's the power to give. So much of our greed and coveting comes from the fact that we feel, honestly, we feel like if we, if we give, we, we're not going to be taken care of. Or if we part with some of our money or possessions, we're going to lose out. And the writer's saying to think long and hard about the fact that Jesus has us, will never leave us or forsake us. We can let go of stuff. So when when you reorient your life around the generosity of Jesus, you know what happens? You become generous, right? When you reorient your life around the generosity of Jesus, what is that? The, The grace has been provided with you through salvation, through the cross. He's given you everything. We can then start parting with our stuff. We can let go of it. Money will forsake us, but Jesus never will. You don't have to be afraid of disaster or tragedy that money falsely makes you believe will provide control and safety. In the gospel, you can be confident that God has your best interests in mind, and as his child, he will provide for you. Listen to Romans eight thirty two: He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that's at the cross, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's going to take care of you. And lastly, number three, we share what we have. Now, if you go down to verse 16 of Hebrews 13 here, the writer tells us to share what we have because that not only shows we believe Jesus is better than money, but we make much of Jesus as our culture. See that in verse 16, we actually glorify him when we do this. Paul back in 1 Timothy 6 said something similar. 1 Timothy 6, 18, they are to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So we're to take our money and possessions and find ways to do good with them. We are to convert, literally, like you go overseas and you convert your money over. We convert that money, convert our possessions into good deeds. 
You know, convert them into pounds or whatever else. Convert them into good deeds. Right? Take them and go, like, how can, I, how can I serve? How can I do something good for someone? In doing that, we break the enslaving grip that treasures have on our heart. So, in short, the antidote to, for money's poisonous effect on our lives is generosity. If you want to break the power of money in your life, then learn to give some of it away for the glory of God and the good of others, right? Learn to do that. There's so much life found around sharing your stuff. We're made in the image of God, and God himself, who is a Trinitarian God, the whole Trinity thing, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that very core of God is selflessness and giving. It's at the very core of God. So we are, think about the most famous verse in the Bible, probably the one you, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you may have heard this one in John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he what? I'll try it again. You can totally, it's okay. Wake up. God so loved the world that he what? Gave. Okay, you can stop right there. That's okay. I know you kept going. That's all right. Good job. That does the Christian school education. It's kicking in. Good job. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but no, you're, you're, God's the word that he gave. Think about that. I mean, you can think about all the things God could have done. He loved the world so much, his response was to give. See that? This is to give. It's no wonder that God is so joyous because giving, sharing generates joy. We feel the same thing when we obey God and believe he's better than money and live in light of that. Hudson Taylor uh, said this. He said, the less I spent on myself and the more I gave to others, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. He's just speaking of his own just personal story. So what does this do with how, how you make much of, making much of Jesus in our culture? What, what do we do? Well, it has everything to do with that. Listen to how Paul put it. 2 Corinthians 9, 11 through 15. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will provide thanksgiving to God. He goes on to say this, for the ministry of, his, of this service, this giving, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, you're, you're helping others, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God, so you're glorifying God. It says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel and the generosity of your contribution for them and others. It's a, a lot of words, but it's not easy to miss. Paul Powell's one word on top of the other saying that when we give generously, God is made, made much of, his reputation and his renown is spread when we give, Right? Um, so when you give, you're saying to the church, you're saying to the watching world, you know, I, I love you, Lord. I'm giving in light of you. The act of giving is a vivid reminder that it's all about Jesus, not about us. It's about the community. It's not about the individual. It's saying I'm not the point. He's the point, right? He does not exist for me. I exist for him. And God's money has a higher purpose in my life than my personal affluence. So giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person who has a greater agenda. Lastly, Demonstrate humility. It's another way we're going to make much of Jesus as a community. Verse 7 and 17. So verse 7 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. And then verse 17 says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who must give uh, an account. So here we find that Christians who use their, their power or their influence to not just give, but then also to submit and follow God-ordained leadership show humility. And, and humility is at the very heart of Jesus Christ. You read Philippians 2. You say, what is humility? Well, it's not necessarily thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. Let me say that again. It's not necessarily thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less, right? So it's not like going like, well, uh, woe is me, I'm, you know, Eeyore here, and that's humility. That's not necessarily what we're talking about. We're talking about just thinking less of yourself. We're going like, I'm going to think more of other people more than myself, right? That's what the essence of humility comes from. 
And this doesn't settle again well with our culture. Pride and arrogance run rampant in our culture. We have this feeling that, if we, that, that we don't need anyone to tell us anything and that most people don't know what they're talking about, right? This is kind of how we perceive the world, right? We, we don't need anyone to tell us anything, and if they do tell us something, they don't know what they're talking about. That's kind of the pervading cultural idea. And when anyone in authority tells us something, our temperature starts to rise, and we feel uncomfortable. We're like, I don't like being told what to do. Yeah, this is because, like, back what I said earlier, we're children of our culture, right? Um, we are to show humility as a family of God in two very specific ways in this text, and this is the, the last two. We are to learn from history, and we are to uh, also submit to our, our pastors or our leaders. He says here, the first thing in verse 7 is learn from history. You say, where do you get that from? In verse 7 it says, remember those who have gone before us and learn, learn from them. We make much of Jesus when you learn from history and demonstrate the humility that we as a people don't have all the answers. Nor are we going to have everything right or do everything right. We make much of Jesus when we don't become chronological snobs, right? You say, what's a chronological snob? That's the, you look back at anything in the past and go, like, that's all dumb. And they don't know what they're talking about. We know what we're talking about. Right? That's a chronological snob. Lewis coined that one. So you make much of Jesus when you study and you read. People have gone before. You learn from them, especially those who've loved Jesus and learned from their example. That's why the text says, look at the text. It says, consider the outcome of their faith. These are people who have died. Verse 7 is about people who have died, gone before them. Verse 17 is about current people. So it says, consider the outcome of their life. Consider how they live their whole life and imitate their faith. That's why I say dead heroes are more important than living heroes. Because living heroes can still mess things up. Okay? Dead heroes are done. They finished. They finished the race. They did a good job. We can learn from them. I'm not saying you can't learn from living heroes. I'm saying dead ones is very good to learn from. That's why he says, remember. That's a word that reaches into the past. Remember those whose life you can survey from beginning to end and consider all of it, especially how it ended. Our culture doesn't do that, right? We think we got it all together and we, we know what we're talking about. I've told you this before, but it's always important to remember this, that the older you get, the more you realize that your present self, um, you know, you, the more you realize that your past self actually had no idea what it was talking about. You say, what do you mean? When you turn 18... You look back at your 13-year-old self, and you go like, man, I was 13, I thought I knew everything. Now that I'm 18, I'm going like, man, I was 13, I didn't know anything. When you become 30, and you look back, and you go like, man, I was 18, I thought I had the world figured out. I was an idiot. I had no idea what was going on, right? You, say, you just keep going. I turned 50, I'm not 50 yet, but when you turn 50, I know it's going to happen. You're going to look back when you're 30, and you're going to be like, I was just getting started, man. I, I thought I knew everything. I, I was just starting to scratch the surface, right? I mean, this is our, our present self always thinks it's smarter than, than it actually really is, okay? We, we never learn from the past, never look back. Um, and so we need the humility to learn from history and learn from those who have gone before us. Maybe, just maybe, we don't have it all figured out. Maybe, just maybe, we could use some wisdom and some direction and some advice from others who have gone before us, right? That's why that's super important. That's why it's important as a local church, we have multiple generations, Right, to be able to learn from those who've gone before us, who've lived that life, who've coming toward the end of their life, can look back and help those who are younger, right, survey and understand things. That's very helpful. Uh, number two, submit to your leaders. So verse 17, uh, the other way we're going to demonstrate humility is not just learn from history, but also submit to our current leaders we have now. Um, the, any, any of those who've put in authority over us. This passage specifically speaks of pastors, but the practice here includes all areas of authorities, like your boss, if you work. Uh, or police, or government, any of those kind of places. Now, this is going to be a knife to the gut, okay? Let me say this. 
this goes against the grain of everything about our culture because, man, as a culture, we love to complain about everyone in authority over us, don't we? And hopefully, hopefully you can see how this submission and humility uh, makes much of Jesus in our culture because to submit and not complain about um, those in authority over you is an anomaly to our culture. And sadly, it's an anomaly to the lo- local church because we just love to complain about everybody that's in authority over us. He's saying here, let's, let's honor those in authority over us. Let's speak highly of them. Culturally, the defining spirit is self-determination, not submission to the will of another. Anything that enhances our individual liberty to do as we please is good. And anything that encumbers us or limits that ability to do as we please is bad. That's the cultural vibe, right? Self is king. Autonomy is the highest law. And this makes this application culturally outrageous. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That just doesn't, doesn't sit well. So does that mean you, you know, what does that mean practically? You say, we obey everything everyone says? Well, do we drink the Kool-Aid? No, not necessarily, right? We follow Scripture. We obey your leaders as they, as they, follow, as they follow Scripture in that way. You say, what does obey your leaders and submit to them mean then? And I love this because the word obey, and this is very important, it's a very broad term used in, in the New Testament, and it literally means to be persuaded by and to trust and rely on. And it came to be known as obey. Because that's what you do when you trust somebody, right? So obeying looks like trusting your leadership. Obeying looks like trusting. John Piper said the following, A church should have a bent toward trusting its leaders. You should have a disposition to be supportive in your attitudes and actions toward their goals and directions. You should want to imitate their faith. You should be a, have a happy inclination to comply with their instruction. Now there is more motivation here in the text. The writer tells us, that your leaders, your pastors, literally keep themselves awake. You see in the passage? This is what it means by keep watch. The idea is, is, uh, may well mean that some of the leaders in the church had lost sleep over certain people in the church, right? They had lost sleep trying to reach out, trying to reach a certain people, and we can vouch for that as pastors. We know what that is like. And that's what he's saying. Like, realize that they're losing sleep over this. And the other reason, he says, is realize also they have to give an account before God for your souls. You don't, have to have, you don't want to have pastors who don't understand that they will have to give an account for you. Never follow pastors who are not painfully aware that one day, after they quit breathing, they will stand in front of Jesus and they will give an account for their leadership and how they treated and spent their life on the church. If that piece is not there, those pastors are leading you towards a house called their own ego, okay? And not building a house, a church based on, uh, they're building a church based on what makes them look good as opposed to what makes Jesus look good. Where you do have men like that, you need to submit to them, follow them. Those who will pray for you, plead for you, not shrink back from the hard things, will lead you by example. Scripture says, follow them. Again, all the motivation, all of this, these three things, sex, money, power, as, to use them as tools for building the community and not our own selfish ambitions comes from verse 8. Last verse here, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Kind of sounds strange, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, love the church, open your home, care for the hurting, celebrate and protect marriage, share your stuff, demonstrate humility, and Jesus is the same. You're like, what? That doesn't seem to fit. <laughs> what, is, what is he talking about? But that's the motivational power here. The writer is saying virtually the same thing he said back in verse 5. Jesus is the same for those in the Old Testament. He's the same for those in the New Testament. He's the same for those throughout history. He's the same today. He hasn't changed. What hasn't changed? Contextually, what hasn't changed? It hasn't changed that Jesus will never, 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 never leave you nor forsake you. That's still the same. It's always been there. And it's not, not like he's gotten tired of our culture and decided he's done with it. 
God is not done with this place. He's not writing it off. We are his people who live here, and he is not going to forsake us in the process. We live among people, people as the uh, book of Jonah tells us, that doesn't know their right hand from their left. It's going to take a lot of time and commitment to see Christ formed in people. We have to stay the course. We have to keep moving. We have to keep going. But I assure you that Jesus is not going to forsake us. You say, how, how do you know that? I know it says it here, but how do you really know he's not going to forsake us? Let me give you another reason for this. The same word here, it says Jesus will never forsake you. You know it's used again in the Gospels? Maybe, maybe you can hear this. The same word is used back in the Gospels. It's the same word used for Jesus on the cross. You know what he said on the cross? It's from the Psalms. My God, my God, why have you what? Mm. Do you realize that? Jesus was forsaken on the cross because he became sin, St. Corinthians 5 tells us, for us. You know what that means? I mean, there's no more forsaking for you. You see, that, that whole statement about I never leave you, forsake you is rooted in the gospel. He'll never forsake you, my friends, because he already was forsaken for you. There's no more forsaking left to happen. You see what I'm saying? You see what he's saying? He was forsaken for us. He was treated as we should have been treated by taking on our sin on himself so that in turn, we would never have to fear being forsaken by God, both now and forever. That's the, God. That's the power right there. That, that allows us to treat these um, elements of sex, money, and power and, and do those things the way God wants us to do them because we know he has our best interest in mind. We know he's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us because he's already happened to him. On the cross, the father turned his back on his own son because at that moment, in that time, he became sin for us so that we in turn can become the righteousness of God. That's what Jesus gives. That's the gospel. If you've never experienced that, you don't know what that's like. You know what that feeling is like to not... Because some of you are sitting here probably and you're worried about being forsaken. Maybe it's in relationships with others. Maybe it's with God himself. If you understand the gospel when you come to that, you can have assurance that God will never leave you or forsake you. We'd love to talk to you about that and work through that together. We, we take communion um, every Sunday because one of those elements is this. We take it in remembrance of him, remembering that he was forsaken, the bread and the juice. It re- helps us remember the body and blood of Jesus that was broken and poured out. That was for, he was forsaken for us. We take it in remembrance of him so that we can remember, God, you're never going to forsake me. You're never going to leave me because of what you did. Now let me let go of the things that I so desperately think I need, right? That's why we do this. This is all part of that worship. So if you're new, we're going to have some quiet time. Don't worry. It may be a little awkward for you, but it's okay. We're going to have a little quiet time where you can talk to God. Okay? You don't have to talk out loud. You can talk quietly. He can hear you think. All right? He knows what you're thinking. Okay? Have some time. Maybe you've never talked to God before. It's just like a conversation. Maybe you haven't talked to God in a very long time. This is your opportunity. Take some time to do that. Well, when you're ready, if you are a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian, you may come forward. You may take the bread and juice. You may give your offerings as a church body, if, uh, as, as members here. And we, we'll do that, and when we're done, we'll sing, and then we're going to have some baptisms. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you so much for the gospel. Jesus, thank you for being forsaken for us. God, it's, um, it's hard for us to imagine that our sin was so great and so significant that it required God himself to be abandoned. That the creator who made all things and made us would go to that great of a length to reach us. That the father would abandon the son, forsake him on the cross to be crucified and killed by us as people 
so that, God, you could, you, could leave, you could save us and never leave us or forsake us. And so, God, as we take communion, as we think through that, God, help us to look at that, be, and be encouraged by that, um, and in many ways be inspired by that to live in light of that grace we've received. Help us to, to honor marriage, honor sex as you've designed it, God. Help us to, to give and share what we have and follow and submit to those in authority over us and not complain in light of what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.